As a rule, the programming of 19th century concert music today features male composers whose works are performed in full and in the sequence of movements in which they were printed and published. As this has been so predominant in the last century of classical music performance, it's actually hard for us to imagine a public concert 200 years ago, which might have been presented any differently. Today, we're going to talk about a Schumann, an incredibly talented performer and composer who spent much of their performing life programming in ways which we might today consider inventive. By breaking up their own large works and inserting others in between movements by great masters in order to better position their own name into the canon of German classical music. Written with the finger of God. Except this Schumann, Clara Wieck Schumann, despite promoting works which would go on to help canonize her family name, spent most of her career advocating for her husband's compositions and not her own. You've got to ask yourself, what was she thinking? Join me. Our combined strength bring order to the galaxy. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And here we go. This is the Early Music Podcast with your host, Andrew Byrne. Brought to you by Rayma, the Early Music Network. Kawabunga. Episode 9. Clara Schumann is probably the most famous woman in classical music um, on account of her being married to Robert Schumann, as most people know. That's Professor Dr. Natasha Logas, Professor of Musicology at the Hochschule for Musik in Freiburg, Germany, and author of Brahms and His Poets, a handbook. I asked her to come on the show to discuss with me Clara Schumann and the German musical scene during her lifetime. She was born Clara Wieck in Leipzig in 1819, and she had a very ambitious father who effectively groomed her for the concert stage. He gave her a fabulous musical education, and she became one of the most successful virtuoso pianists in a century which was, you know, bulging with successful solo pianists. She had a a really stellar career. She married Robert Schumann. They had a very, very large number of children, seven children, um, which slowed her concertizing considerably. And then Robert Schumann died 16 years into that marriage. And in 1856, the year he died, this is where most biographies of Clara Schumann used to stop. They would just stop telling the story because the story of widowhood is not a very interesting one. But in fact, she lived for 40 more years. She toured Europe extensively during that time. She went to the UK a number of times as well, all the while bringing her husband's repertoire into the public sphere. People didn't really like Robert Schumann at the beginning. And it was she who transformed that picture through strategic programming choices. She also taught a great deal. So there's um, at least one generation of pianists across Germany, and across England, also people from the States who studied with her. And that legacy, I think we can still see in our public piano playing concert life today. So yeah, she died in 1896 in Frankfurt, where she settled and she was a bit of a grand dame of the piano world by then. Uh, A really extraordinary woman. What was the expectation of a female performer in her milieu before she was married? 
It's really, really hard to tell. There is a sense that her father wanted to capitalize on her gifts as much as he humanly could. Um, she was like his investment. So he was very disappointed with her early marriage and particularly to someone like Robert Schumann, whose prospects of earning a living were poor. He was feckless. He was disorganized. He was not a uh, professional in the way that Friedrich Wieck, Clara's father, would have recognized. So I think Wieck probably, this is me speculating, I think he probably hoped that she would stay unmarried, which was the case for many female pianists of the 19th century. They simply couldn't reconcile the two different lives. Was music making principally an income generating activity or an avenue for artistic expression? Clara Schumann never had the luxury of playing for the sake of art. She did not come from a wealthy family. And as I said earlier, she married a man who was not capable of supporting her financially, which would have been the normal expectation for the centuries. So there is no point in Clara Schumann's life where she can afford to stop worrying about money. The fact of having seven children, being a widow before the last child is even born. And then even the later generation, the three sons that she bore were all problematic in different ways with health problems and you know children of their own that they could not afford to support. So she not only supported her children, but she supported her grandchildren. It was an enormous burden, which I think she bore with tremendous grace because she never sort of sold out on her artistic values. She managed to walk that very delicate tightrope between earning a good living and making music that she could feel proud of. Was marriage a defining moment for a female performer at that time in career terms? Yes. There was no way of avoiding making the decisions that came around marriage, but different women negotiated this in many different ways. So some of them married but chose to remain childless. Some of them married and were very blessed in having husbands who would support their public careers. Some of them married and had children and simply vanished from the public stage because it was considered immoral. So married women in certain cases could continue to perform. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Concert life was actually surprisingly generous to women. So a lot of women after marriage managed to maintain concert lives. They couldn't go on to the theater stage. They couldn't sing an opera, but you know, it was a very respectable thing to get on the stage and sing a Handel aria, for example. So although the expectations were very strict, the different solutions that women found are really varied. It's very hard to generalize. What was Clara Wieck's day-to-day -day musical life while married to Robert Schumann? The marriage between the Schumanns was only 16 years long and it involved eight pregnancies. That's a mm -hmm. lot of time to be going around carrying a baby inside you. Um, it is a physically exhausting thing. Her diaries during her marriage are absolutely heartbreaking because time and time again, she laments the lack of time to practice, the fact that her practice has to be given second place in comparison with her husband's composition, which took priority in the home, even though it didn't really earn very much. Robert Schumann was not a great music professional, although he was a, a truly wonderful composer. Foreshadowing. So her day-to-day -day during her marriage was, I think, full of ups and downs. There was a very, very deep love, the deep belief in her husband's musical principles, which she was more than happy to support and endorse wholeheartedly. But there is also a loss of self, which means she doesn't get to practice very much. She doesn't get to compose most certainly. 
Robert Schumann writes things about how she understands it's her role now to be a mother. And at the same time, he is not really able to take on the role of being the financial provider. So I think it was probably a very conflicting time for her, full of the euphoria of early marriage and motherhood, and at the same time, really profound worry about how they were going to live. During her lifetime, what were the main avenues for one to listen to a musical performance? In Leipzig, where she was born, there was a flourishing concert life that had been established by the end of the 18th century. So there were subscription concerts, and in fact, there were various different formats of concerts. And there was also probably statistically much larger private amateur music making life. It was completely the norm for middle class people to have a musical education, to be musically literate, and to be able to make music at home. Hence the enormous market for arrangements and potpourris and dance music. And we, we hear a lot of that, for example, in Franz Schubert's output. A lot of that music is music for pleasure, music to be enjoyed by amateurs. So there is a whole spectrum of possibilities to enjoy music. After the death of Robert Schumann in 1856, Clara began to experiment with concert formats. Could you tell us more about that? When Robert Schumann died, Clara Schumann was alone with this enormous burden of these seven children to support and had to find her place in a society in which widows were traditionally more or less invisible. So what could she do with this? She had to find a way of making a concert a special experience, something which was tied up in the transformation of aesthetic value of music. So music as entertainment, sure, but also music as something which is profound, which is spiritual, which is enriching. And we can see this in the language which reviewers describe her concerts with. They'd always praised her as a great musician and all the rest of it, but then we see values coming into those reviews which were not traditionally associated with music earlier in the century. This is, of course, bound up with much bigger aesthetic transformations. Music suddenly becomes a thing that really matters, that can stand alongside literature and theatre and things like that. So she's very much part of that transformation of thinking of music as something very serious and meaningful. And she approaches this through trying out different ways of programming, assembling pieces of music into concerts, which are really, really thought-provoking experiences. It's not just a case of jumbling stuff together because that's stuff she can play. And we also have to remember that these are all collaborative actions. Unless she has a solo concert, she's making music with someone else, whether it's a violinist like Josef Joachim or a cellist like Piatti, so people who have huge reputations and repertoires in their own right. And we can understand those concerts as ways of creating joint artistic identities. We, we know how important networks are in music. We can see Clara Schumann nurturing her musical networks as much through her programs as through her social life. What music would she perform in her own concerts? She did not perform, sadly, her own compositions very much at all after her husband's death. Um, and this is something which has puzzled and saddened me because I think if she had performed her own compositions, she would have set a pattern which her students would have been able to follow. But as it was, she silenced herself artistically to some extent and then her students in turn, the majority of whom were women, 
did not perform their own composition. But yes, coming back to this idea of collaboration, she and her collaborators would assemble the pieces that they had individually chosen into really interesting sequences and kinds of things that we don't see on the concert stage nowadays. Like for example, if you have a multi-movement chamber work, um, we would always play those movements one after the other nowadays. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Clara Schumann's concerts, it's not uncommon to have movements of a chamber work split up and pieces interpolated in between shorter pieces like solo piano works or songs or maybe a violin romance or something. So you have this constant change of texture. You're not expected to listen to 40 minutes of the same instrumental texture as we would now normally have. And you have this relationship building, or at least what I interpret as a sort of relationship building when you put different pieces of music beside each other you're creating an affinity saying these things belong together again it's a way of strengthening a network to say Beethoven belongs with Robert Schumann Robert Schumann belongs with Schubert Schubert belongs with Brahms and this is really a kind of canon building that is happening alongside the traditional writing of music history so to me it's sort of making music history through music. Improvisation was also a key part of 19th century musical performances. Could you tell us how Clara Schumann incorporated the practice in her own work? I can, and I'm very grateful to my colleagues Valerie Gertzen and Mo Kim for their fabulous research on Clara Schumann as an improviser, because it's a side of her that was regularly underplayed in the historic accounts which were given down to us. So when I was speaking about having small pieces stuck together, one of the ways in which people connected those pieces in performance was through improvisation. And you would use small connecting interludes in order to prepare a key or prepare a theme. So it's not like having little bits of things stuck beside each other, but more like weaving a tapestry of sound in which different pieces are connected together in time and through music. This is really an organist's skill nowadays. Pianists are not regularly taught to do harmonic improvisation, which I think is a tremendous shame um, for 19th century repertoire. Of course, if you go back a couple of centuries, it is the norm. So it's a case of pulling history forward in order to try and imagine what that 19th century soundscape was really like. Natasha is absolutely right when she says that improvisation is really not a pianist's skill today. I imagine that part of the reasoning why most international-level concert pianists do not improvise in music from the canon are twofold. One, that there is really so much variety of repertoire nowadays that it could be hard for a performer to feel that they would be able to improvise in a way which would do justice for each work that they performed, especially given the insane technical level expected from audiences and critics today. Furthermore, what would it say about them that they might improvise in only some music and not others? And two being how we view these works as cultural artifacts. Concert music in the classical music canon is primarily viewed as somehow transcendent, or beyond or above the range of normal or physical human experience. And performers who alter or rewrite or split up the movements of or improvise over these works are often criticized for, well, messing with a good thing. Who would dare presume that their little tinkle on the ivories would be so good as to sit next to the works of Ludwig van Beethoven, for example? You maniacs! You blow it up! Oh, damn you! 
God damn you all to hell! Well, maybe not with that sort of intensity, but uh, you get what I'm saying. What an unusual story this is when you think about it, especially given our outlook on this period of music even today. Generally speaking, only a small minority of women performers and composers made it into the history books. But there is more and more research in the field of music presently unearthing important women as well as their contributions. And you can find links on this episode's webpage if you want to know more. But you would think that, because of the fact that women were in such a minority, someone in Clara Wieck Schumann's position, a talented female performer and composer with connections and, and the drive to tour Europe, you would think that she would choose to put her own music above that of her late husband, so as to add a woman's name to the classical music canon. Except, as we've learned, the story of German music history was only just being written, and it was people like Clara Wieck who helped build the canon. How was she to know, however, that her work would have any lasting effect? I think we too often imagine important musical figures of the past walking around in their own lifetime understanding how famous or important their work would be after their death. They were just living their lives. Sometimes they had to make a conscious decision as to what they were going to focus their energies on, in Clara's case advocating for Robert Schumann's music, but how was she to know that her choice in this realm could and would end up having a lasting effect on the decisions of future generations of female performers? There's a lot of food for thought in this episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. Natasha Logos, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It was my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. To play us out, Natasha recommended we take a listen to a live CD by Joseph Colomb. It's a piano recital featuring a melange of movements for piano by various composers, woven together by small improvisational passages of the kind we spoke about in this episode. Here is the end of a theme and variations by Mozart from his 11th piano sonata, followed by an improvisation incorporating a tune most of you will recognize, which modulates us into the third movement of Franz Schubert's Moment Musico. If you'd like to know more about this CD, then you can find that on the episode's webpage, the link to which is in the show notes. And so ends episode 9 of 10 in this, the third season of the Early Music Podcast. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Laurie Strauss, Professor Emerita of Music at the University of Southampton, about her work trying to trace an errant musical manuscript back to its origins, and how her story demonstrates how events in the present affect how we understand the past. 
I'm Andrew Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>